Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that compares the lives and works of 18th, 19th and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your other host, Lauren Burke. So today marks the return of Louisa May Alcott. And yeah, um, yeah. we just had to bring that joke back, right, Hannah? Because it's um, it's so, so funny. Well, Everyone's when we were just... doing the scheduling, I think I was like, Lauren, what's happening in May? It has to be Louisa May Alcott. <laughs> Obviously. So we rescheduled a couple of things, but you know, I think yeah. it's worth it for the pun. I, it, yes, that's, that's what we do around here. Pun based <laughs> scheduling. <laughs> pun based programming. So um, you guys know that we have talked about LMA quite a bit on the show. Um, Our most recent episode celebrated 150 years of Little Women with the author Anne Boyd Rue. And last May, we also interviewed Jan Turnquist from Orchard House and hosted the uh, That Eight Cousins read along. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Uncle Alex. (laughs) So those old episodes primarily focused on, you know, Little Women, her children's writing, Bronson Alcott, her childhood. But this week on the show, um, we want to return to Louisa and dig into a few more topics, including travel, money, fame, and feminism. So all my favorite things. Which is, if you had to pick one of those, which would be your favorite? Oh. Ooh. Mine is money. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to say money. <laughs> I mean, feminism. I just, I stuttered. I didn't. I mean, maybe travel? Feminism. Ooh. Travel. But, but, but feminism. But also fame. No, I yes. would, fame's definitely my least favorite. Yeah, that one, that one I scares me. For someone who likes to talk so much. I want people to listen to it. (laughs) Please, please listen to something else. So today we're kicking things off with an interview with Marlo Daly. Marlo teaches American literature, writing and interdisciplinary humanities classes at Lewis Clark State College. She lives with her family in Lewiston, which is in Idaho, where she devotes large amounts of her time to walking along the Snake River with her dog, which sounds risky, Because if there is a river full of snakes, you don't want your dog to be next to it. Great point. Great point. Or you. (laughs) Neither of you should be next to a river of snakes. (laughs) Uh, She has spent years thinking about Louisa May Alcott's fascination with the problems of being a professional woman writer in the 19th century. And her Alcott-related work has been published in Reconstruction, Arizona Quarterly, Women's Studies, Girls Series Fiction, and American Popular Culture, and critical insights little women it's quite a list it is most people who do Elcott work will say I read Elcott as a child and I just loved all her work and um, as a kid I was a pretty voracious reader I would go to the library and get the maximum number of books that was allowed which I think was 10 and I'd read through the whole pile in a week so I read Little Women, Little Men, Joe's Boys, and An Old Fashioned Girl all in the same summer. But I think unlike many of my fellow Alcadians, I was never very excited about any of those books. I just read them. I was of a generation who grew up without a smartphone or Netflix and my sister and I have talked about the fact that we would frequently read books that we just didn't like that much. So 
I read Elcat with, I guess you could say, mild enthusiasm. And I didn't really think about her again until graduate school. And then in my first semester, I took a class with the fabulous Judy Nolte Temple. And it was a class on women's letters and diaries. And in that class, I was exposed to Elcott's journals. And I was really surprised to see that um, this Elcott that so many readers love uh, had a much darker side. And I'm not even talking about her sensation literature, which is also fascinating. She wrote all of these blood and thunder tales that are pretty racy, but the journals are just a little bit crabby and grumpy. She complains a lot. Um, and most of her birthday entries, she talks about, I didn't get very many presents. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I discovered that, you know, there's this, so this is an author who the last line of an old fashioned girl is, and so they were married and they all lived happily until they died, which is kind of a sunny, you know, easy position to take. And she was sometimes just not that likable. And Maybe this makes me weird, but that made me like her better. So. I am 100% on board with you. I, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, because um, we just finished work and we're going to talk about that on our next episode. Yeah. But like, we're really struggling with like Alcott the woman versus Alcott the writer. Right. Um, and I think there's definitely, um, you know, she was a very complex person and she was a complex writer, too. But in some of her work, you don't see all of the levels of that complexity. Now, um, I Googled you and this line popped up <laughs> and I'm like obsessed with this line because I feel like this is very much what we're focusing on, like this season and particularly mm -hmm. this month with like women's work is sort of like the theme for May. Um, so in your bio, it says that you've spent years thinking about Louisa May Alcott's fascination with the problems of being a professional woman writer in the 19th century. So I'm obsessed with that. And I just need you to tell me everything about that. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, probably part of that obsession has to do with the fact that I am a literature professor. And so I'm constantly uh in alternating between the role of reader and writer. I also teach writing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and in some ways those, obviously there's a relationship between the two positions, but there's also um, kind of an inherent conflict in being both at the same time. And um, I believe that Alcott felt that really deeply. After she published Little Women in 1868, she, that changed her life so dramatically and it changed her public life as an author. She was always referred to as the children's friend mm -hmm. and um, the author of Little Women, although she wrote a number of other works like from that from 1869 onward, um, she was the author of Little Women. Even her dad, uh, the philosopher Bronson Alka, after her publication of Little Women, people would refer to him as the father <laughs> Right. <laughs> of little women. So um, it was a very public part of her identity. And I don't think she really relished that all the time. Mm -hmm. That really limited the way she could present herself professionally and publicly. And so after, after Little Women came out, she stopped doing most of her sensational writing. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that literature, but it is really racy. It includes 
things like murder, suicide, um, mm -hmm. poisoning, their mistaken identities, sexual assaults, prostitution, drug use, uh, pretty much anything you can think of comes up in these in these stories. And so Elcott, the Elcott who wrote, you know, Old Fashioned Girl and Little Women also wrote this literature. And I think, I believe that she really wished someone in her time period would have said, hey, isn't there a conflict between these, these different sides to yourself? Um, I'm pretty sure that she felt that way because she wrote all of these stories that I think of as um, author mysteries. And like, this doesn't even sound like it would be a good plot point, but in several stories, she's got an, a character who's an author. And the big secret of the story is that the, the thing people think the author wrote wasn't written by that person, or there's a secret to the author's identity. Um, wow, <laughs> you know, the big reveal. <laughs> um, and so that is really fascinating and weird to me. And, um, you know, I, well, on this podcast, you are constantly looking at the problems that women authors have faced, right? So uh, Alcott recognized that in the 19th century, when women were generally thought to occupy the private sphere and men occupied the public sphere, being an author, you had to straddle both of those realms. You write by yourself in private, but then you put it out there and become this public figure. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she she thought that was interesting. She thought it was troubling. She knew that women didn't always get the same kind of respect that um, mm -hmm. their male colleagues did. Nathaniel Hawthorne famously made fun of the damned mob of scribbling women. And he was her neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, there's that side to it. And then, you know, it was an accepted position, but it was also right. one that incurred some risks. A woman who was writing and publishing could be considered not respectable or unladylike. And so I think that Elcott's writing that problem through her author characters and also through, she has a lot of characters who I think are also author characters, even though they might be expressing themselves in other art forms like the visual arts or acting. She has a whole bunch of stories about women who are actors. Mm -hmm. That's true. Just like in, in work, actually, I was yeah. kind of surprised to sort of go back over Alcott's resume and I was like, oh, I didn't realize that she did that. Yeah. And if you think about it, writing is kind of a form of acting. You take on a mm -hmm. persona and put it out there in, in written form. So uh, I don't think those those two forms of expression would have seemed uh, radically at odds to Elcott. Now, while we're on the topic, so like before she really established herself as, you know, Louisa May Alcott, the writer, mm -hmm. she had a bunch of different jobs. So could you tell me a little bit about, you know, what those were and maybe how they impacted her writing? Sure. Um, so as you said, once once she achieved the level of set success that she had with um, her children's fiction, she kind of dedicated herself fully to writing as a career. But before that, she did so many things. Uh, she would take in sewing for money. She taught um, and she really disliked 
teaching, uh, but she, you know, she in her journals, she'll say, oh, I hope I don't have to teach next quarter. <laughs> and, um, she was a paid companion. Uh, she had a stint as a Civil War nurse at Union Hospital in Washington, D.C. She did domestic service and um, and then later on, she edited a magazine. So she really was, um, you know, she she was working in a lot of ways, and we see this in in work and the different careers that Christy takes on. But um, it was because she needed she always needed to work to support herself and her family financially. So she worked really hard, um, even after she was earning quite a bit of money because she felt this imperative to do this, to keep the family fed. And so while she frequently depicts characters who might be living comfortably, the Elcots were not, uh, at least not in the early years of her career. They had to move every few months. They had to accept charity from friends and family kind of over and over again to the point that I'm sure some of their family members found them burdensome. And, um, you know, these experiences always motivated Elcott to work really hard, even to the detriment of her own health. Beyond that, though, I think they give her source material for so much of her writing. It, if you read through her body of work, she writes about working women, uh, working in a variety of fields. And you see that in work, obviously, but also in works like hospital sketches or how I went out to service. Uh, so for her, you know, it was her reality. She needed to work, but then it also ended up being something that played out uh, in the writing that she did for the rest of her life. Now, we are currently doing a work read-along. Do you have any thoughts on work on that on that book? It does take quite a turn, I yeah. feel like. <laughs> it absolutely does. I, I really love that you're reading work. I think mm -hmm. it's so, so good. It's probably my favorite Alcott text. Um, and one of the things that uh, that sticks out to me about it is that the book was originally going to be called Success. Um, and given the way the story unfolds, I think that's that's an interesting title for the work because it's the story of a young woman who leaves home at 20 and she tries her hand at a number of careers and she enters into relationships with different kinds of people. And she experiences a lot of things that I think you would not consider to be a success. Right. So, <laughs> um, the fact that the novel ends up being called work and not success is really important. Um, mm -hmm. She seems to emphasize that life is work. Uh, it's a process. I think she feels the process itself is more important than the end result. Mm -hmm. um, but my favorite part of work, and you'll have to let me know if you share this feeling, is the way that um, she explores friendships between women. Um, I, I just really love that aspect of it. Christy leaves behind her only family, and she has to build new relationships, and she learns through trial and error how to be a good friend and how to receive the kindness of 
friendship from other women. I think that's my favorite part of work. So now um, we know that Alcott was making quite a bit of money as a children's writer. And so I think that's something that we're really interested in exploring this season. Um, You know, the money she was making, how she was spending it, you know, how she was making so much money. Honestly, I guess first question would be like, what do you think is the secret to her success? Like, why was Little Women so, like, popular? Right. Well, it's a great question. And I think the answer is pretty interesting, too, um, because, you know, it's a well-known fact that Little Women was the work that catapulted her into fame and into recognition as an author. But there's also one really specific thing that she did with regards to the sales of that novel that secured her financial success for the rest of her life. Um, And it was something that was a little bit unusual. So in 1868 and 1869, when Little Women was published, it was fairly common for authors simply to sell their rights to a novel when the novel was published. So Mm -hmm. um, they would earn a flat rate for the work, and then the publisher would be free to publish and collect earnings on any subsequent sales. Um, So it's totally... It wouldn't have been strange at all if Alcott had sold Little Women for a few hundred dollars mm-hmm. and it became this huge success and then she was done with it. But um, for some reason, and we're not quite sure why, her publisher, Thomas Niles at Roberts Brothers, advised her to keep the copyright for that work. And um, oh. and so she did that and she writes about it in her journal. And in the section where she talks about keeping the copyright, she went back to it years later and edited her journal and made this note acknowledging that thanks to her honest publisher, those are her words, and some good luck, she made a fortune by doing that. And so I've you know, I've tried to figure out what was it that motivated yeah. Niles to to suggest this. And and the reason it's surprising to me is maybe he had the best of intentions and just thought, I think this is going to do well and she'll make more money this way and I want that for her. But I don't think anyone expected Little Women to do as well as it did. It was There was actually a pretty big risk for her in publishing this novel. She thought it was boring when she drafted the first 12 chapters. Um, And so it could have flopped, but of course it didn't. And, you know, she made uh, like, I think a thousand dollars right away in the first year or something and uh, ended up making $150,000 on that book alone over the course of her career, which, you know, the, I don't know how to calculate that in terms of inflation, yeah. but it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, so it was this turning point in her financial life. And the book has never been out of print. So it worked out really well for her. And it could have just as easily not have been as big of a deal in terms of its economic impact on her life. That's crazy about the copyright. I did not know that. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Um yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm very happy for her that uh, that it worked out that way. Now, what did she do with all this money when she got it? Yeah, um, so she was always really generous with her money, and um, she she spent it on her family. Uh, mm-hmm. Largely, that was where her money went. Um, she actually contributed to all of her family members' needs. Uh, you know, her parents were never that good 
at earning money. <laughs> and so uh, she kind of stepped up to help them, making sure they finally had a comfortable and stable living situation. Soon after uh, the second part of Little Women was published, uh, she was supporting her sister, Anna, because Anna's husband, John Pratt, died, leaving behind his wife and two children. So Louisa was then supporting uh, her own family and her sister's family, paying for uh, two mortgages. And um, she also made several investments into accounts for Anna and her nephews. But then she also was supporting her other sister, May, who was studying art in Europe. And um, when May died in childbirth, Louisa took in her daughter, Lulu. So really the bulk of her earnings were invested in the property and um, savings and accounts for her family members. And I think knowing how, uh, how much the Alcott struggled early on, uh, it was important to her that they could end up living comfortably, and they did. She, she was just like totally sensible. Yes, <laughs> right, I know. She didn't really like blow it on, you know, uh, I don't know what you even would, like what would be your big expense in the 19th century that would just be wild, but right. yeah, she didn't do that. <laughs> well, she did go overseas, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, so this was uh, the first time Elka got to go overseas uh, was not really that much fun for her. <laughs> this is before the publication of Little Women. She went as a paid companion. And um, and I think she enjoyed being in Europe, but as a companion, she didn't get to do all of the things that she hoped to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the good thing about that first trip, uh, so I think it was, she wouldn't write it off as a loss, was that she met uh, Laddie, who is the young man that she later described as one of the inspirations for Lori in Little Women. Oh, okay. Oh, nice. And we don't really know what happened with Laddie. There's a bit of mystery surrounding that. But in her journals, she describes it as a little romance. So, oh. um, you know, that that happened. <laughs> uh, so that, that was her first trip to Europe. But after, um, after she started earning money from her writing, she was able to travel in Europe on her own terms, something she had really always wanted to do. So she and her sister May uh, took a trip to Europe in 1873. And really, that, by all accounts, feels much more like a vacation. Uh, mm-hmm. They were kind of taking in the sights. May was doing uh, some art. And Louisa did a little bit of writing, but m- much of that writing was in the form of letters back home. So I think it was nice for her after working really, really hard, sometimes to the point of making herself writing, you know, all day long and on triplicate paper, pressing down really hard so that she damaged her hands. Um, You know, she was able to relax a little bit and enjoy uh, the sights of Europe. Jealous. Yeah. Jealous. (laughs) Now, you are really well versed in the letters and the journals. And is there anything in particular? It can be, I mean, from whatever, but is there like a a particular like anecdote or something that just like makes you feel very close to Louisa? Yeah. Um, well, I, I actually have a little anecdote about me that feeds into uh, one about Alcott. Uh, 
that kind of encapsulates the way I think about her today, because right now she's kind of a hot author. Um, Little Women, you know, it just celebrated its 150th anniversary and a whole bunch of books have been published about Elka and her work. But when I started working on her in graduate school, uh, you know, a little more than a decade ago, she wasn't quite so hip. Uh, and I think my my committee was actually a little worried when I said I wanted to write an Alcott dissertation. I'm sure they were thinking, how is she ever going to get a job? <laughs> but they did approve my proposal and I did get a job. So I guess it worked out. But um, at my comprehensive exams, I remember one of my professors asking me, do you think Alcott was a feminist? And it was an exam, right? An oral exam. So I kind of froze up and it gave me pause because of course, one part of me felt really strongly that Alcott was a feminist. And yet in this exam, all I could think of were all these examples for why she's not a feminist. <laughs> um, the fact that, uh, you know, Joe and Little Women gives up writing is deeply problematic. And I think there are ways to read that, that, um, that maybe make it an act that gives her more agency. But of course, mm -hmm. I couldn't think of that. I'm thinking about the way she's really dismissive of I Irish servant girls. And I know during this exam, I've got to answer quickly. And so I'm sitting there like all these things are going through my mind. And I realize if I don't come up with something, I'm going to have to just answer this question saying she was not a feminist, which seemed like the worst thing ever in the context. <laughs> so thank goodness. Uh, I remembered uh, this little story about um, in 1880, uh, although women in the United States did not at this point have the right to vote, in Concord, Massachusetts, they actually approved a resolution that women could vote in local elections. So um, I don't know how many people know this, but Louisa May Alcott was the first woman to register to vote in Concord. And in 1880, she was the first person to vote in a school committee election. So I think just the idea of her, you know, walking in with her ballot and dropping it in a box in front of the 19 other women in the community who voted and being part of that movement and kind of leading the charge uh, for the right to vote in the United States uh, in her own place and her own time was something that I really connected with and thought, yeah, that's that's like very solidly and traditionally what we describe as feminist action. And although Alcott did a lot of other things that um, are debatably feminist, I don't think anyone would argue that uh, participating in this election, leading this election was, uh, was kind of symbolic of things she dreamed of for women. And I don't think that carries through to the writing she does, that um, celebration of women's stories and the fact that she believed that women's stories should be heard and were important. We see that in work, we see that in happy women, we see that in little women. Um, you know, all of that for me is kind of encapsulated in this little story about her dropping her ballot in that box. Now, we are very like Brit centric on mm -hmm. the show. So um, can you help us with some American <laughs> authors? <laughs> Yay, I definitely can. Um, 
So if we're talking about the long 19th century, um, mm -hmm. I mean, I really love the work of Hannah Webster Foster, Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Um, I love to teach Fanny Fern. Uh, her work is so teachable. Students love it and they've never encountered it before. I have uh, never heard of Fanny Fern. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you need to read Fanny Fern. Um, that was her pen name, but um, it's what you'll still find her most commonly anthologized under. And her novel was Ruth Hall, but her humor writing is really where it's at. She's so mm -hmm. biting. Um, and as as a reader of Austin, I know you will appreciate Fanny Firm's cutting, um, cutting feminist. Too. Like she's really tough on men. Uh, oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah, so I, I love Fanny Fern. I love Harriet Wilson. Harriet Jacobs, and then um, a really in the 20th and 21st century, I can't get enough of Leslie Marmon Silco and Toni Morrison. But I also want to share my number one book of last year. I keep a list of all the books I read every year. And Ooh, my favorite book that I read in 2018 was a collection of essays by Camille Dungy. And mm -hmm. it's called A Guidebook to Relative Strangers. And this work. I wish everyone in the world could read it. It's just such a beautiful meditation on race, on motherhood, on nature. And they're really smart and um, complicated and so nicely crafted every single essay in there. So I love it so much. It makes my heart hurt. That's my big, my big plug. If anyone needs something to read, read Guidebook to Relative Strangers. Okay, so I could do that cute thing where I say, we're back. But I'm so mad that Marley doesn't like old-fashioned <laughs> go, but has the audacity to say that work is good. <laughs> like, I'm baffled. Uh, okay, first off, great interview. Marley's a great guest. Everything's great. But this work thing, I can't. I just... I mean, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, Hannah, Hannah hates I... work. <laughs> Hannah hates work, and I think next week we are going to battle it out, like old school, like like Bonnets at Dawn season one style. Yeah, where so I'm I, wrong. I think I like work. And one day, I'll, this is, you're doing that thing where you say one thing off mic and one thing to the mic, because I'll just say, Lauren was bad-mouthing it too, everybody, so it wasn't just and then me. I had, a, I had a turnaround. I'm still only halfway through. Did you hear that honking? I did. That was rude. <laughs> it was rude. I did love Marley's point about the female friendship. So like there's friendship after mm -hmm. friendship in there and it like it does show a lot of value, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself and we should probably just save our work talk for the work episode, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, probably. Yeah, it's a good The thought. other thing I really liked about it was just like uh, the point about Alcott kind of sharing out the wealth. So mm -hmm. she was this really wealthy woman, but she wasn't like hoarding the money. You know, this wasn't just like a benefit to her. So she's got all of those dependents and family members and she's really doing good stuff with that money. And so there's that extra pressure to yeah. earn it. And like, on, she's not just sat there, you know, like, oh, I've had an idea for a nice story. This is like effort. And I've been doing a lot of George Eliot research the last couple of weeks. And mm -hmm. did you know, FYI, my favorite fact I've been telling everyone that uh, when George Eliot was first getting published and began making money from her writing, she was paying off the debts of her husband in bunny ears. Quotes, air quotes. Because he was, he was actually married to a woman called Agnes who had loads of debt. 
And when he got sick, George Eliot wrote for both of them and paid off his wife's debts. It's crazy. Isn't that mad? Lauren, tell us the pots of gold story. That's a fact. This is a good story. Right. So one of my favorite things about Louisa May Alcott is that she was responsible with her money and she paid her debts. So, um, yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) She, um, I sent you this story yesterday. I really, really liked it. It's the pots of gold story. So Louisa, back in the day when she was in her 20s and bouncing around from job to job, she started um, teaching kindergarten. She didn't want to, though. I, I feel like she's sort of like the Bronte sisters in this respect, mm-hmm. where she was not a fan of the teaching, but it was a way to live. One of the only ways as well. Like Right. One know. of the only respectable ways. This is a smart woman. Like, what is she going to do? Right. Um, so, yeah, she's teaching and... I believe James T. Field was dating her cousin or like a friend of a friend. And he's this, you know, hotshot editor. And everyone's like, hey, Louisa, like show them, show me your writing. And so she shows him a short story. And I believe it was hospital sketches. But you, I mean, don't quote me on that, guys. Anyway, she shows him a short story and he's like, yeah, this is this is shit. Like, you're not going to make it like. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, he pulls a Robert Salvi on her, basically. Yeah. Like, this is really not your place. So we've got Mouthy Mouthy Salvi. We've got Mouthy Salvi. And we've got that fucking Fields. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what are you going to do with Fields? Yeah. That fucking Fields. Fucking Fields. Shaking my head. I should um, upload a picture of him to our Facebook group. He's got these, this hair and these chops. I mean, it's, like, it's really... Uh, biographical bad lad. Yes. Bad lad. No, he gives her a loan, though. Well, yeah. He's just so patronizing. He's patronizing. So he's That's like, so listen, bad. you don't have the talent to do this, Ugh. but here's 40 bucks. Like go forth and, you know, put this into your school and just flourish as a school teacher right where you belong. <laughs> so yeah. it's so funny. Like, I will pay you. I will pay you to do anything else. Yeah, I will pay you to not write. <laughs> if I could build a time machine and pay her to not write work, I would do it. <laughs> so he gives her this money and she takes it and she goes on. And uh, then, of course, a few years later, she writes this book called Little Women. She makes a ton of cash and she writes him a letter and it says, once upon a time, you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Ah. Yeah, here's your $40, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Before we move on, how much is that in today's money? Like, what's the equivalent? Because someone could give me £40, I could go and spend that on food, you know? Like, Yeah, yeah, totally. It could could be nothing. Um, So she actually sold Flower Fables for Mm -hmm. $35. That was her first book. Um, and that's like roughly a thousand dollars. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's a chunk, right? It's a chunk. Like, that's yeah, like it's Jack a good... giving me a thousand pounds. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, rent, expenses. Okay. For a month, probably, right? I couldn't start a school with it, but, you know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a nice, it's a nice bit yeah. of money. Um, And then over her lifetime, I know Marlo mentioned in the interview that she made, um, I think it was over her lifetime, 150000 from Little Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like roughly four and a half million, according to an internet website that I found, guys. So, you oh, know, like, nice, great though. assault. I, I like that. That's a good amount of money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. I think my gal, George Elliott, might have made more, you know. Really? Yeah, maybe. Oh, my gal, George Elliot. My gal, insert male pseudonym. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, before we move on, we will need to move on at some point. Right. Let's just talk about the fame one more time, because I know that it wasn't, like, great. Right? I feel no. like today there's a lot of boundaries, but things weren't quite the same in the olden days. Like, with the Brontes, right. it was just like, I, I'm going to come to the house and knock on the door and... You know, so what was going on with Alcott? With Alcott, I think it's interesting. Again, I think it's just really interesting because she goes from this, like, life of being a seamstress, a companion, a re- mm-hmm. you know, someone who's, like, really struggling to suddenly being a millionaire and then super famous and then super accessible. Alcott, everyone just, like, kind of seems to know where she lives. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's hilarious. So she was bombarded with letters which is, it's fine. That's okay. Um, And most of those people just wanted autographs or they were like letters from children. So that's the other thing, right? When you write children's fiction, yeah, they like want to contact you or they feel like this personal connection with you. Um, She, she was not a fan of autograph hunters at all. In fact, um, she told Louise Chandler Moulton, who was a writer that was uh, working on an authorized biographical sketch of her Mm -hmm. um like by the way when you write this thing about me please stress that i am not signing any autographs like get these people to stop sending me these letters thank you very much um her fans also wanted advice like from everything from like what should i wear to who should i marry aunt (laughs) joe she's like god i don't care like i actually do not care um and people would actually come to her house. So yeah. that I find really, really interesting. Like, to the, like, she actually would hide in the woods when they came to the house. Or she would pretend to be the maid if they caught her off guard. But yeah. So, like, it's really interesting because I feel like we haven't run across this with any of the other writers that we cover. Like, being so accessible and so famous and so not into it. There are actually... Super similar stories with Elliot. Which are there? Okay. You know what's blowing my mind is just like that every now and then we'll talk about two authors or like Lauren and I will be researching people at the same time and then it just blows your mind because you're like, there are these links, there are these connections. Mm-hmm. But like, definitely, I think because they were successful, so we're getting a lot of the same success situations. Right. But uh, George Elliot was also sending people saying, like, I don't want to, I'm not going to sign your autograph or like, I don't have photographs to send you. Right, like people right. would write and say, I want a photograph of you. And she would just be like, they don't exist. Goodbye. No. Elliot may have run into this too. Like, so this is an interesting thing that would happen to Louisa. Um, that like her friends then would also be pressured to bring people to the house. I would say the difference here though, is that, um, that Lewis, so George Elliot's husband mm-hmm. was, um, he really wanted to make her like this figure that people 
congregated around. So there was mm. this joke that they would have like Sunday service almost, right? Okay. Like pre-Kanye, Sunday, uh, Sunday service. Yeah, they would yeah. have this salon where people would go to talk to George Eliot. And it was like, you would invite people and like there was a circle so that would like, come around. Nice and approved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there were all, all sorts of people who were like desperate, like desperate to make her acquaintance. I actually pulled a little section of a letter, Hannah, if you want to read it. This is um, in Alcott's own words. She's actually writing to a friend of hers who has written to her like, hey, I want to bring some people by. Is that cool? Okay, so obviously you need to imagine this is an American accent. Mm, yes, obviously. So don't be tricked. Alcott was not British. Um, I don't believe anyone knows how we are bored by company. Over a hundred a month, most of them strangers. A whole school came without warning last week and Concord people bring all their company to see us. This may seem pleasant, but when kept up a whole season is a great affliction. Mother says we have no home now and no chance to see our own friends. I'm sure you'll understand this and see that it is easier for you to say to your friends that the Alcotts are not an exhibition in any way than for me to shut the door upon them and seem rude. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, that's it. Sound that sounds sad. Like there is a sadness. Like it's easier for you to say to your your friends that we are not an exhibition. Yeah, you know. And it makes you think like, oh, I see how Concord House like became a literary home too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, because it, well, it happens naturally, mm-hmm. like the Bronte Parsonage as well. Like totally. people are already making that journey. But yeah, that, that letter is like really, yeah. it's really sad actually. Yeah, it, it um, really gets you in the heart. Really, yeah, like brought her down. And it's also, it's just like hashtag new money, new problems. Ugh. I know, bringing that one back from season one. (laughs) Remember that, guys? (laughs) Justice for Jason. That one. And also the classic hashtag wretched bondage, which I think Louisa May Alcott really felt for those 35 years. And then, boom. We should get matching wretched bondage neck tattoos. Yeah, we should. Absolutely. (sighs) No, we should just release like a wretched bondage t-shirt. Yeah, we should. But... That's a future plan. Because That's right now, yes. we have a new t-shirt. Oh my gosh. Do we have, have a new t-shirt? Yes, we do. Have we told the people what the quote is? I can't remember. No, we do haven't told, told the people them. What the quote I like is? teased it. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. You if you do guys it. don't love this quote, I quit. Wow. I quit. Because I, I, I'll have you know, I trolled through so many Jane Austen quotes and then I mm-hmm. found it and I was like, I couldn't believe it. Okay. Okay, Hannah, what's the quote? Name that line. I can listen no longer in silence. Well, that one would be a banger from your all-time favorite book, Persuasion. Yes, it's from the Wentworth letter. But the joke's funny on two counts because one, it's a Jane Austen quote from my favorite novel, Persuasion. But two, (laughs) it's about listening to the podcast as well. Look at you, (laughs) working on so many levels. So on two levels. So if you guys want to pick up a t-shirt, you can go to Bonfire and search Bonnet to Dawn. And yeah, that 
shirt is available for 18 bucks. A portion of the proceeds will be going to Chotten House Library. And we're going to um, specify that it goes towards their adopt a book program. So yeah. they've got a couple different campaigns going on right now. I think they've got like a capital campaign for the building. But we want to make sure that the books are taken care of. Um, and I think specifically we can adopt a Francis Bernie book. So Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can, That's I can throw down like all the choices. Yeah. Um, we can, in our we Facebook can do a group. Poll. Yeah. It'd be great. And you know, if we make enough money, then we can adopt multiple books. We can just a have dog. a whole book family. <laughs> <laughs> we could try and get one for every bonnet's author. I mean, that would be really lovely if we could do that. So um, Yeah, I hope yeah. you guys like this t-shirt. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> We are also going to be opening up the Team Austin t-shirt campaign again very soon. So um, be on the lookout for that. And uh, those are limited edition. So like those campaigns stay open for about three weeks and then they close. And God only knows when they will open again. Um, I will be posting a bunch of links, of course, on our social media. And Hannah, uh, what is social media? What is it good for? Why is it happening to us? Absolutely nothing. And you can find us. How do us. you find our social media? <laughs> you can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com or you can join our lovely, very vocal at the moment, particularly I feel, Facebook group mm. by searching bonnets at dawn and just answering a couple of questions to prove, yes, you are not a robot true story all right guys thank you so much for listening and we will be back next week to talk about work 